Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning. First of all, thank you to the women's choir, to Tim Yoder. Uh, let me alert you that at the end of the sermon, after I pray, they're going to come forward and do a uh, a, a bit of special music, you can remain seated and then we'll stand together for our closing two hymns. I also want to say that I trust that you saw the email message that came from Robin late in the week in which he shared the good news that he has passed his ordination exams. We're thrilled and look forward to March 7th in the afternoon when there will be an ordination service. And we're delighted with God's purpose in your life, Robin, and how that connects and supports and will encourage the ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in the months and years ahead. Well, we are continuing our series in 1 Peter. This letter from the Judean fisherman who made his own amazing journey by God's grace and divine calling from fearful denial of his Lord to just 50 days later, dedicated declaration of the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and then to inspired biblical authorship. What a life and what a journey. And he writes 1 Peter, let me just remind you, he writes 1 Peter to remind us of our exilic identity. 
chosen by God to be his redeemed people, but not fully belonging to this temporal life on earth. He writes to alert his readers to the reality of gospel suffering during this little while we are in this world. He writes to point his readers to end time hope, to that great day of vindication for God's people when Jesus returns. And he writes them, he writes to urge them to present day holiness in words and actions and relationships. So Peter says, remember who you are, prepare to suffer, don't forget what's ahead, and strive to be holy now. Last week's passage ended with verses uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 2. A fitting conclusion to that whole passage, because we are a chosen race, because we're a royal priesthood, because we're a holy nation, Peter urges us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the, the passions of the flesh, to wage war against those passions which wage war against us and to keep our conduct honorable so that when others speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And those same verses are a fitting introduction to our passage for today because Peter will begin now to show us what that should look like in our daily lives, how we should conduct ourselves in society, whether as citizens or as workers or in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. At first, it may seem surprising that Peter's first application of those verses about abstaining from passions and doing good in the sight of others, it may seem surprising that his first application has to do with submitting to governing authorities. We might have guessed that he would start with sexual ethics or how we handle money or telling the truth, or showing Christian love to others, or any number of areas of application uh, that we need to hear about as elect exiles on our way to glory. But considering the context, it actually makes sense that Peter would start with submission, because his readers were in the midst of increasing persecution, false charges and slander, almost daily peril for their Christian faith. After all, this was during the reign of Emperor Nero, whose cruelty, especially toward Christians, was outdone in its wickedness by his blasphemous claims to be himself divine. So we can understand why Peter would start here. To tell his readers that their first duty as temporary residents would be to abstain from sinful passions and to be honorable in their conduct by submitting recognizing and accepting God's sovereign calling and purpose for them, including suffering for their faith. Their eternal hope is assured. They ultimately look to Jesus himself, who willingly and trustingly submitted himself to suffering and death on the cross to accomplish our salvation. And I think it's important for us to focus in on that right at the beginning here because, uh, you know, submitting is not a nice word for some people. In fact, it's an ugly word for some people. They immediately react negatively. They find the entire notion of submission distasteful. For others, submission raises questions about the limits of government authority, and certainly the immorality of servanthood and slavery. 
And many Christians have these questions, not because they are raging American individualists, but because the Bible itself prompts us to raise those questions. For example, the same Peter who tells us here to be subject to the emperor and to his appointed governors says in Acts 5.27, we must obey God rather than men. The Apostle Paul challenged and even defied civil authorities by continuing to preach even when told not to. And of course, we recall the Hebrew midwives who refused to obey Pharaoh's command to kill the Hebrew babies. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. And Daniel who prayed in spite of King Darius's prohibition and many other such examples throughout scripture. And we can think of examples throughout Christian history. William Tyndall, early translator of the English Bible who challenged the king. So many martyrs who refused to recant their faith. Many who refused to obey governor's orders or unjust laws. In fact, you may recall Augustine's famous phrase in Latin, it's lex in justa, non est lex. An unjust law is no law at all. And we rightly celebrate the courage of law-defying Christian abolitionists in the mid-19th century, and Anne Frank and Corrie ten Boom in the mid-20th century, and many in the civil rights movement in the US, so many who faithfully obeyed God rather than men. And of course, we've been in the thick of such issues over these last months, haven't we? As churches and church leaders have wrestled with governor's mandates, regarding church gatherings, churches choosing to respond in various and sometimes opposite ways according to their respective understandings of scripture and its application to our situation. Now, why am I talking about this now? It's because when we come to passages like 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25, or the similar teaching of Romans 13, 1 to 7, which by the way says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities which God himself, himself has instituted, such that if you resist the authorities, you are effectively resisting God himself. When we come to passages like that, we often are immediately drawn to questions like, what are the limits of governing authority? When should we submit? When should we refuse to submit? Which laws are just and therefore should be followed? Which are unjust and should be resisted? When should we obey God rather than men? These questions reasonably arise about civil disobedience, about the proper occasion for public and sometimes even unlawful protest, and even for rebellion. Our own country came into being with many biblically faithful Christians involved in armed revolt against what they regarded were unjust laws and conditions that they believed violated God-given dignity and freedom. These are valid questions. And because we believe in the whole counsel of God and in the principle that scripture interprets scripture, it is important to wrestle with how 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 cohere with all the rest of scripture, including all those examples in the Bible and across history. Now, I wanna note that Peter and Paul both include hints about the purpose of governing authority and therefore perhaps its limits. That its authority is not absolute, 
that obeying God rather than men is a higher and absolute priority. 1 Peter 2.14, if you noticed it, says, God has appointed rulers to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Romans 13 says that the ruler is not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, and carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we might infer that if rulers do not faithfully fulfill those God-appointed roles, well, to paraphrase Augustine, an extremely unjust ruler may be no ruler at all. I would also note that some have made a distinction between submission and obedience, that they are different things, and that we could faithfully follow Peter's and Paul's teaching to submit even as we disobey men in order to obey God. That way may well be right. For example, consider how many Christians who have disobeyed specific laws and governors have then willingly accepted, i.e. submitted to, legal consequences and punishment and even imprisonment. I would also add that in considering these questions, we must acknowledge that the Bible really does not get into the details of specific formulas and applications. Yes, principles like obeying God rather than men, and many examples. But exactly how that should look in any given situation, the scriptures do not, and I think do not intend, to give us much specific help. In such areas, we must affirm and allow the freedom of Christian conscience and not bind Christian conscience with our own formulas for how all Christians must respond. As one writer put it, while we must not be complacently relativistic, we must also not conflate our own conclusions with all of God's commands. Instead, we affirm and trust that faithful Bible-believing Christians may differ in exactly how to apply Scripture's absolute teaching in specific situations. Now, having said all that, we're not going to deal with any of that this morning. Lots of good books and sermons about that, and it would be wonderful to talk about that. But I wanted to clear all of that out of the way first so that this morning we can zero in on what I believe is the main focus of Peter's teaching in these verses. What is the distinctive contribution of these verses in the whole counsel of God in light of the broader context of the book of 1 Peter and the real life context in which his readers were living? The main focus of this passage is not about civil disobedience or the extent and limits of government mandate with application to whether or not we should submit to Governor Pritzker's mandates. Peter's main focus is the posture of our hearts and the faithfulness of our gospel witness, our hearts and our witness. And in a world obsessed with politics and power, and anti-power resentment, and who are the oppressed, and who are the oppressors, and who gets to, to decide what for whom. This is a message about our hearts and our witness that we, and especially I, need to hear. When I'm so inclined to rail against govern, governing authorities and their decisions. We will see this two-pronged focus throughout this passage, tending to our hearts and our witness as we submit 
with suffering on the way to glory. And I believe that this is really the best way to make sense of the passage, particularly how it ends with that extended, magnificent homily on Jesus Christ, on his submissive heart and his gospel witness on the cross. Three sections in our passage, verses 13 to 17, the submission of citizens to governing authorities, verses 18 to 20, the submission of servants to masters, and verses 21 to 25, the submission of Jesus Christ, who is our example. So what about submission of citizens to governing authorities? Let me reread verses 13 to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice immediately the phrases that actually take our eyes off of the governors and put our eyes on God for the Lord's sake. This is the will of God, living as servants of God, fearing God. The issue of submitting to rulers is set in the far more important context of our submission to God. As you consider your rights and duties as a citizen in a community and in society, do you have a heart that is submitting first and foundationally to the sovereign Lord who rules over all things? His sovereign rule, his sovereign salvation, his sovereign purpose and plan for you and your life. Or do you, like me, have a tendency to focus on and seek what I think is better for me, my rights, how others have wronged me, being easily offended when others don't treat me as I think I should be treated? You know, we live in a culture that is increasingly full of people who are easily offended by almost anything. It seems like no matter what we say or do, we will surely offend someone. Resentment has a hair trigger. And we can succumb to that same self-absorbed sensitivity, always on the lookout for insult or mistreatment or some slight to my identity and my rights. Peter is urging his readers and us instead to keep our eyes on the Lord God, his mercy, his salvation, our imperishable inheritance in him. As we do that, by God's grace, we will be able to submit to those in authority over us without the raging war of sinful, selfish passions in our hearts, but with trust in God and a living hope, a sure and certain living hope for eternity. We will even be able to honor our leaders. As verse 17 says, not because they are righteous or honorable, because many are not but because we are humbly trusting in our sovereign, gracious God. And notice verse 16. I love verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. For Christians, our submission to earthly authority is not based on social class 
or ethnic identity. In other words, it's not based on a condition or identity over which we may have no control. Peter says you are free in Christ. You are not intrinsically subject to rulers, but be subject to them willingly, humbly, honorably, for you are subject to God. And if there should be occasions, and there may well be in these next few years, if there is a, are occasions when Christians are compelled to obey God rather than men, we will want to do so with that kind of heart, a heart for God, not from selfish passions, not out of a desire for power and control, but for the Lord's sake, with reverent fear of him, like Daniel, and like Peter himself. So we pray, as we live as citizens in our communities and societies, we pray, Lord, purify and sanctify our hearts so that we speak and act as unto the Lord, not out of fear of man, not out of resentment, but for the Lord's sake and freely because Christ has made us free and we freely submit to him. So that is the heart in our submission. But there is also the witness in our submission. Remember verse 12 from last week, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now here in verse 15 is a very similar idea, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And it's not just here that we find such a teaching. Remember Jesus himself in Mark 5. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or Paul's instruction to Titus to live in such a way that the word of God may not be reviled. And so that in everything we may adorn, that is make beautiful and attractive the doctrine of God our Savior. As Christians live as submissive citizens, as we do good in our communities for the Lord's sake, as servants of God rather than men, Peter says that our lives will become a testimony that will counter many of the falsehoods and attacks of foolish people, i.e. unbelievers, and also point them to God. Now, we know that's not a guarantee. In fact, more and more. It seems that those falsehoods and attacks are increasing in intensity no matter how much good Christians may do. Jesus himself says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And in fact, in verse 12, Peter says that others may see your good deeds and glorify God, but not until the day of visitation. So it may not happen soon. But here is a guarantee. If we do not do good, if we do not honor those in authority, if we join in the pursuit of sinful passions and play the power game and speak with anger and resentment, then we can be sure that our lives will not be a witness to God and his grace. We may not be able to prevent the reviling of the gospel in Christ's church, but we can certainly refrain from fueling it. And I believe we can also trust that as we do good in submission to the Lord, there will be those watching 
in whose hearts God is at work by his spirit, who will be drawn to the Lord by the testimony of our faithful, God-fearing witness. So that's, the, that's our heart and our witness in this matter of submitting to governing authorities. Well, let's move on. Verses 18 to 20 where we'll see this same two-pronged focus on our hearts and our witness. Let me read those verses again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sufferings while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, as most people do when they look at a passage like this, they, they, they would note that servanthood in Rome was probably not what we are familiar with as slavery in America. As Dan Doriani puts it, American slavery was worse than Roman slavery in most ways. American slavery was race-based, had limited or no paths to freedom, and rested on kidnapping, which is a sin and a capital crime in Mosaic law. Roman servants or slaves could own property. They could follow their own traditions. A Roman servant could hope for economic security and decent treatment and actually had several paths to freedom. Still, the life of a Roman slave was difficult. Servanthood was involuntary and a slave's body belonged to another person, his master. In those ways, it was a much more difficult situation than our modern-day employer-employee relationship. So Peter's command to servants to be subject to their masters was no small matter, especially in commanding submission not only to just, but also to unjust masters. Of course, Peter was not endorsing or blessing slavery any more than in the previous verses he was commending unjust and immoral rulers. But he is telling believing servants how to live godly and gospel-shaped lives within a pervasive, entrenched system. First, we see the same heart posture. Verse 19, mindful of God. And verse 20, in the sight of God. A servant's submission is, first of all, an act of humble submission to God, an act done with our minds filled with God, an act done before the face of God, in the sight of God. But second, we see the same focus on witness. Verse 19, submission to a master is, Peter calls it, a gracious thing. And verse 20, when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing thing in the sight of God. As we read that English word gracious, we might think of it as graceful, full of grace. It refers primarily to that which pleases God, that of which God approves. But Pastor David Helm and others suggest that this gracious submission is not only something that is graceful in the sight of God, but is also displaying true graciousness to the world. The grace of God is revealed in the world when Christians who are treated unjustly nevertheless act honorably and good. Helm writes, this is what the world needs to see from us. Our faithful, graceful witness through our humble submission. So once again, 
It's a matter of our hearts in submission to God, and it's a matter of our witness in the world. And while we may not be in the position of Roman servants, we certainly find ourselves in a variety of positions where we must heed Peter's teaching to be subject to those in authority, even if they act unjustly and unfairly, whether it's in our nation or in our workplaces or in our schools or wherever relationships are structured like that. And to drive the point home, to make sure we don't miss the punch of what Peter has for us in this passage, he goes on. As we submit ourselves in this way, we are following in the footsteps of our Savior. And that is Peter's ultimate point. It's about Jesus Christ and our calling to follow his example. Let's read those verses again, 21 to 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter surely had the words of Isaiah 53 in mind. We heard them read earlier. Uh, Those words were surely echoing in his mind as he wrote this. Tracing Christ's suffering, his subjection to human authorities, his unjust treatment at their hands, his humiliation, and his steadfast refusal to play the power game or return evil for evil. And why? First, the posture of his heart. Verse 23, he continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That same focus, looking to God, mindful of him, living for his sake and his ultimate just judgment, his sovereign purpose, even in the midst of horrific injustice and unimaginable suffering. And he did it for the sake of his witness. Not just a witness to God's saving grace, but the suffering and dying witness, the body and blood witness, the efficacious atoning witness to God's saving grace. You know, we bear witness. Jesus was the witness. The martyros is the Greek word as he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then that final reminder of what carries us along in our submission through suffering on our way to glory, all the way along, he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. You see, it's Christ's own submission through suffering on the way to glory that provides the main focus and punch of this passage. Not the extent and limits of human government or civil disobedience or when to revolt against unjust rulers, although those issues are important and will surely arise and the Bible has guidance and examples for us. But the punch of 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25 is our relationship with Jesus Christ, 
our desire to please him and emulate his life, to know that in him we can live in righteousness, in him our wounds are healed, in him we can entrust, entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, in him we have the strength and hope we need to walk in the world. And I want to add this, no one can expect to be able to follow his example unless by his saving grace you have indeed died to sin. And by his sanctifying spirit, you are being enabled to live to righteousness. If you have not put your trust in him for forgiveness of sin by his death on the cross for you, and the hope of eternal life by his resurrection from the dead, do not expect that you will be able to follow Jesus as Peter describes. Don't try this without Jesus. If you have not put your faith in him, do it today. So that with hearts submissive first and foremost to God and lives that bear witness to his grace and goodness, we can follow the example of the shepherd and overseer of our souls until by his sovereign grace we obtain the outcome of our faith, our complete salvation, and our eternal imperishable inheritance. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would sanctify our hearts in submission to you. And I pray that you would empower our witness in and through our submission so that sinners would see your glory and grace and be saved. In the name of Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, amen.